Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her fascinating and remarkable new book, Faithful Fighters, Identity and Power in the British Indian Army, Kate Imey explores the negotiation of religious identity military service, and imperial power in the context of 20th century British India. How were preconceived British imperial notions of religion and loyalty to the state, attached to indigenous South Asian communities, frustrated by the way Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, and Nepali Gurkha, which included Hindu and Buddhist soldiers, engaged the state and performed their political and religious identities as part of the British Indian Army. Faithful Fighters is a powerful and brilliant meditation on the impossibility of modern colonial power to canonize religion and religious identity. The six chapters of this book examine a range of archives, themes, theatres and actors, including tensions surrounding the valorization of Sikh loyalty and controversies shadowing the kirpan or the sword, the co-optation of pan-Islamic sentiments for British imperialism, suspicions and sexual desires invested in the figure of the Pathan, Nepali Gurkhas, caste hierarchies and rituals of purification, debates of food and religion in the military, projects of nationalism through military academies, and masculinity, fascism and Hindu nationalism. This thoroughly researched and multidisciplinary book will attract and interest scholars from a range of fields, including South Asian history, religious studies, Islamic studies, military history, and cultural studies. Beautifully written and populated with enticing narratives and images, it will also be a delight to teach in a variety of classes. Here now is my conversation with Professor Kate Aimi. Hello, Kate. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Kate, for being on uh, the New Books Network. As I was uh, saying right before we started recording our conversation, that uh, you know, Faithful Fighters is such an incredible book. It is conceptually really uh, invigorating. It asks some excellent questions. It's uh, really fascinating in terms of the narratives and the range of sources and um, archives that it that it uh, examines is just quite uh, remarkable. So, congratulations on this incredible uh, intellectual achievement. First of all. Uh, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, Kate, okay, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners, uh, A, sort of a two-part question, A, how did you become a scholar of South Asia, uh, historian, etc.? And then B, how did you come to write this uh, particular book? Okay, uh, first, thank you so much for your very kind words. Uh, my book came out in December, and it's been, as we know, a few really strange months. Um, so hearing that people are, are enjoying it, um, really means a lot. Um, but to answer your question, I originally did not set out to be a historian. Um, my life was relatively set at the age of 17, weirdly, because I attended the United States Air Force Academy. So I was expecting to join the Air Force, maybe become a pilot um, and serve in the U.S. military. Uh, but I decided after a year that that wasn't the right path for me. I was much more interested in my history classes and in pursuing a more humanities-driven life and career. So I ended up leaving the Air Force Academy and basically doing a a full run-through of of an academic experience in a truncated amount of time. Um, Sort of transferred out of the academy, worked my way through university, and then went went straight through um, into my master's and into my PhD. And so with that being my background, I was absolutely certain that I would never write a book about the military um, because I was sort of like, okay, I did the military thing that was part of my past. But, you know, I'm really interested in cross-cultural encounters. And especially after I took a class um, on Buddhism at Red Rocks Community College, which was when I was working my way through my undergrad, I started to notice some thematic parallels and impact of, you know, Buddhist thought and and Buddhist ideas in a lot of 20th century British literature. So for my master's, I became really interested in those kinds of cultural exchanges, 
between British intellectuals and especially their travels and experiences in India. But what I realized writing that master's thesis was that it was only really allowing me to tell one side of the story, you know, sort of what British authors and intellectuals are taking from India. And I wanted to do something that was a bit more, you know, of a dialogue, Um, you know, how are Indian leaders and thinkers and intellectuals and civilians being shaped by um, this encounter with colonialism. And ironically, that took me back to the military because one day I came across a really weird collection of a British fascist guy who had been an an officer in the Indian army um, who was a huge enthusiast of yoga. And I was like, well, that's odd and unexpected. Um, And then I found another one. Um, I found another British officer who was really interested in yoga and fascism simultaneously. So that kind of got me thinking about the military as a site of dialogue, of cross-cultural encounter, and what that means in the context of a colonial institution, in the uh, kind of bigger questions about the intersections of race and religion, especially in a military institution that's so you know, racially hierarchical, um, which bases its recruiting patterns on religious difference. And I think that that led me to think, okay, there's something really interesting going on in the Indian Army, and now how do I tell that story? while paying a much greater attention to Indian soldiers' perspectives of these experiences. Terrific. Uh, So you've already begun to talk a bit about this, but I was wondering, Kate, that perhaps our first question can be sort of a bit broad in terms of uh, uh, getting the listeners to learn a bit about the context of the book, sort of the time period and the key conceptual thread that runs throughout it. So the book is titled Faithful uh, Fighters, um, could you sort of describe briefly uh, what's sort of the central conceptual sort of theme that that you're exploring in this book in terms of the interaction of religious identity, military service, and imperial power, and then sort of the sort of uh, uh, time period, sort of context. If you could just lay out the land a bit conceptually and otherwise for the listener before we get, get into the more specific uh, chapters. Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the the first things that people learn about the Indian Army, the colonial Indian Army, uh, is this recruiting theory of martial races. And there have been a number of excellent works um, by Heather Street Salter, Kim Wagner, um, Gavin Rand, and many other authors, Kaushik Roy, um, who have looked into this question of the martial races, and especially in the 19th century context, um, thinking about its continuities with pre-colonial Mughal, um, Khalsa Sikh warrior traditions and how these are being molded and adapted to a colonial context. But I noticed there seemed to be somewhat of a a lag um, in really digging into what this identity formation really meant for soldiers, how soldiers used and spoke back to these colonial categories and especially in the context of the 20th century. Um, The 20th century for me is such an important pivotal moment where you have global war of unprecedented scale um, and also the intensification of anti-colonialism. And I think that usually uh, a lot of scholars and thinkers more generally, members of the public who are interested in India's history, assume that these are two different stories, um, that there is anti-colonialism, which is people rebelling against colonial institutions. And then there's the history of serving a colonial army, which people often think of as a history of loyalty, of devoted service, um, and of kind of buying into the promises of empire. Uh, But what I was finding is that in the 20th century, there's a considerable amount of overlap of back and forth. You have soldiers who will fight for the British Empire, who will fight in these major conflicts, but constantly be questioning what their service means, what this means for um, nationalist movements that are growing back home, and what it also means for kind of internationalist movements that are growing during the same period. So soldiers are getting a lot more exposure to the rest of the world. They're having a lot more conversations, not just with British people, but people all over their, you know, wherever they are serving. And this is shaping how soldiers think about their identities and how they reconcile their service. So for me, 
in order to understand what the martial races really means, you have to take it into the 20th century and really understand how soldiers are using and reconciling these identities in conversation with these bigger global issues of global war, of anti-colonial activism, and in some cases using their identities to navigate these political, economic, social, and military changes. Now, the first three chapters focus on uh, three different communities, the Sikhs, uh, the Muslims, and then the sort of uh, Nepali uh, Gurkha, uh, and, uh, or how they were framed. Um, and one of the things that you show throughout the book, and especially in these first three chapters, that was really fascinating and really well done was that the British had certain kinds of conceptions of framings through which they saw these communities and their possible uh, roles or loyalties with the, uh, with the Indian army. But then you show in each chapter how these sort of preconceived framings were constantly disturbed and uh, and undermined in terms of how, uh, you know, the, the imperial power and the uh, religious and uh, socio-political lives of these soldiers uh, worked uh, on the ground. So so the first uh, chapter is on, on the Sikhs and you show that the British had this conception of them as sort of ideal soldiers or the most loyal of all soldiers. But then you show how this sort of uh, preconceived notion was often disturbed, especially through this really, really interesting and fascinating debate on the kirpan um, or the sword and so on. So I was wondering if you could sort of speak a bit about this argument of the first chapter of how, uh, you know, were Sikh soldiers presented and imagined and how that sort of imaginary was disturbed, especially if you could speak a bit about this fascinating controversy that you talk about in this chapter on the kirpan. Of course. Um, so one of the, the first things, you know, as I mentioned, that people know about the Indian Army is the martial races. And if they know anything about martial races, usually the first community on everybody's lips is, OK, let's talk about the Sikhs. You know, let's talk about this community, which is so closely equated with this idea of the martial races. And it's something that has been really prevalent through the commemoration of the First World War as well that if South Asian soldiers are included, if there is discussion of the Indian army, usually it's Sikh soldiers that are at the forefront of that conversation. They kind of provided a visual marker of difference from a British imperial context um, because they have these five markers of the Khalsa identity, um, including the uncut hair, which is usually wrapped up in the turban. And so from a British imperial context, they have this kind of um, iconic image of being the loyal soldier of empire. And what I found in my research was that, as you suggest, you know, this is being disturbed in, in various ways, especially during the First World War, um, at a time when the memory of this conflict is of, you know, Sikh lo loyal service, which, according to the narrative, goes back to 1857. But actually, a lot of Sikh soldiers are really navigating this war in complex and layered ways, questioning uh, what their role should be in the war and how this has implications for their ties to their communities back home. And one of the early groups of sources that I found while I was you know, thinking about these questions, um, and this was inspired in part by my, my reading of uh, Tante Yong, um, his great work on Punjab and the Indian Army. Um, he talked a little bit about the sort of Akali movement, um, and he had mentioned uh, the Kirpan as being something that was really integral to these uh, anti-colonial movements and these protests among soldiers. And one of the first groups of sources that I found was a series of uh, sources of images from uh, the Jatha state, uh, or sorry, the, the Naba state and these um, Akali Jathas that were assembled um, protesting um, the restrictions of access to holy sites, gudwaras. And in every one of these pictures, it seemed there was a prominently displayed kirpan. And I'm like, well, what's going on there? You know, what's going on with these swords? Why are they the center of these images? And especially because the Kirpan plays such an important role in the recruitment of Sikh soldiers. Um, if a soldier wanted to be recruited into the Indian army, he needed to prove that he was a member of this warrior fraternity known as the Khalsa, uh, that he needed to outwardly display these five markers of identity, one of which was carrying this Kirpan. Um, and yet there's this colonial ambivalence about, you know, if we arm these soldiers, 
does this make them violent? So maybe instead of giving them actual swords, we'll give them a little token or a little decoration. Um, but instead, in this uh, kind of anti-colonial space, these soldiers are saying, nope, it's about the sword. It's about prominently displaying them that this is a central and integral part of our identity. And so this chapter really grew out of my engagement with these visual sources and just seeing how frequently soldiers are uh, showing these swords, using them in, in protests and in demonstrations, which runs an interesting parallel to the emphasis on the visual and the visual markers of difference um, that the British public will associate with the Sikh community and Sikh soldiers in particular. Now, in the next uh, chapter, uh, Borders, Boundaries and Belonging, which focuses on Muslim uh, soldiers, uh, let me first ask you about the first half of the chapter, in which you show in very fascinating detail ways in which pan-Islam or the idea of a pan-Islamic identity was actually uh, uh, put to the service of a certain kind of a pro-imperial uh, identity among Muslim soldiers. And especially if you could speak a bit about these um, military pilgrimages that you talk about to the Hijaz and how uh, Sharif Hussain of uh, uh, Mecca was uh, uh, showing hospitality to Indian Muslim soldiers and so on. So let's focus a bit on the first half of the chapter first and how 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 did the British try to sort of mobilize Indian Muslim soldiers uh, as a counterweight to say the uh, Caliphate movement or the Khilafat movement, uh, and try to bring together a certain pan-Islamic identity with a certain pro-British imperial identity through uh, the Indian Muslim soldiers? If you could speak a bit about that thematic, uh, which runs through the first half of the chapter. Absolutely, my. Understanding and first approach to pan-Islamic movements usually, uh, again, kind of came from a context of being separate and distinct from what's going on in the army. Um, and so a lot of times it's all about how this was an anti-colonial movement. It provided a, a counterweight to what um, the, the British Empire represents as an alternative source of power. And what I found really interesting was that British leaders, British military officers recognize this, recognize the appeal of the Ottoman Empire to a lot of Indian Muslims, um, especially before the First World War, um, as the Ottoman Empire finds itself in, in various precarious situations, despite being one of the largest um, you know, Muslim-ruled powers in the world at that time. And so a lot of Indian Muslims have, have, have a emotional connection to the Ottoman Empire. And yet, when the First World War breaks out, the British Empire finds itself fighting against the Ottoman Empire. So there's this desire to reconcile um, this desire for Muslim loyalty while also needing these soldiers to fight against the Ottoman Empire without challenging or undermining their identity, their dedication to Islam, and the very genuine uh, emotional and political connection that that some Indian uh, Muslims had been cultivating um, and developing toward the Ottoman Empire. So what I found was that this issue of pilgrimage became a way to change the conversation. Um, and this was building off of some earlier trends that the British had been trying throughout the First World War. Um, they, for example, would put Muslim soldiers in charge of uh, pilgrimage sites or in charge of holy spaces or shrines and, and tell them, okay, protect these spaces. And so that, that started to change the conversation where a lot of Muslim soldiers said, how can we go and fight against a Muslim power, against Muslim soldiers? This seems to make us uh, be fighting against our faith, put, pitting Muslims against one another. And instead, British officials are able to say, hey, if we offer these soldiers the opportunities to protect their faith, then what they're doing is fighting on behalf of it uh, rather than fighting against it. And so this will play out in a very interesting way with the issue of pilgrimage, because um, essentially a few people had been floating the idea in the last months uh, and really last year of the war that, <clears throat> hey, we have a, a large number of Muslim soldiers fighting in and around the Ottoman Empire, quite near to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Wouldn't it make sense for us to facilitate 
the Hajj pilgrimage for some of our loyal, devoted soldiers. And so this is what they end up doing. And, uh, you know, they authorize the plan at the end of 1918. And then by 1919 are looking to how do we facilitate and make it possible for our Muslim soldiers who might not otherwise be able to afford undertaking the Hajj pilgrimage at, at this point in their lives? How do we make that possible for them to be there and to honor their faith? And then again, view the British Empire as something that will help strengthen rather than undermine their faith and especially their service to a British colonial army. How can they view this as something that will uh, bolster their beliefs, bolster their connections to Muslims around the world rather than undermine it? And so this is politically very important because the British Empire will play a large role in uh, deciding the the fate and future of former Ottoman territories and and partitioning and dividing and creating those those mandate system, uh, the mandate system, um, while also having promised to Arab nationalists, for example, that they would have their own separate uh, land, that they would become the 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 future of Islam in the region. Um, and so Indian soldiers become important intermediaries in this, where they are meeting with and networking with Arab leaders and joining forces as Muslims uh, who nonetheless see themselves as loyal to the British Empire and say, OK, how can we work together to create a world after this war uh, that is good for Muslims? And how can we see the British Empire as a vehicle? for that. And so these pilgrimages will bring these Muslim soldiers in conversation with Muslim leaders and, and this idea of pan-Islam as a, as a pro-imperial, pro-British identity gets really uh, hardened and ironed out in these moments of pilgrimage and becomes quite crucial for explaining why Indian Muslim soldiers do not desert the army uh, en masse after the the end of the First World War in favor of of some of these anti-colonial movements. And in the second half of the chapter, you focus on another sort of uh, privileged uh, uh, martial, uh, uh, I guess, uh, ethnicity or race, uh, the Pathan, the figure of the Pathan. And you talk about ways in which there was always, again, this kind of a uh, tension between valorizing the masculinity of the Bataan soldier, but at the same time being very suspicious of the Bataan, especially on the northwest um, border regions, uh, uh, which presently, of course, fall under uh, the country of Pakistan or the Waziristan region. Um, so uh, how did this ne uh, negotiation play out in terms of uh, valorizing the masculinity of the Bataan, but also being very suspicious of the loyalty of the Bataan to the British Empire? And if you could speak about that theme, especially with reference to this very fascinating character and episode that you talk about in relation to Captain uh, uh, Moisey, is, is that how you pronounce it? Or, yes, Moisey. Uh, Moisey. Uh, so yeah, if, if you could speak a bit about uh, his episode and how that brings into relief this tension between valorization of masculinity, but also deep suspicion of the loyalty of the figure of the Pathan soldier. I think the, the Pathan soldier provides perhaps the best example of, of just how ambivalent this recruiting theory of, my, of martial races could be, um, where, as you suggest, we want to praise these soldiers because, you know, we, the British, uh, view them as, um, you know, manly and martial. We equate this with the environment in which they live, of it being rugged and therefore cultivating these kind of warrior qualities. Uh, but at the same time, a recognition that these are um, populations who live largely in a borderland region, who can cross imperial borders um, with relative ease, and, and then also challenge imperialism through the same martial strategies that are seen as valuable for recruiting purposes. And so the Patans are really uh, one of the most fraught communities in terms of this ambivalence and this desire to, on the one hand, encourage martial prowess, but then also to restrict martial prowess if it's being used in colonial ways. And so the case of Moisey uh, was one of those 
really golden ticket, lucky finds in the archive where I was literally bored one day. And so I just started looking through some of those bound, uh, large bound books that you can find in the British library um, where they have multiple files bound together. And the things that I was looking for weren't really yielding um, anything of, of great interest. So I just started thumbing through these files and then came across a kind of passing reference to a disgraced officer of the British Indian Army who decided to free um, a young Muslim man, a young Pathan man uh, from captivity and was perceived as being uh, politically dangerous. And so I had his name as a starting point, um, found several records of him, luckily, in both uh, the British Library and the National Archives. And then I was also able to find additional materials uh, in the National Archives of, uh, of India as well. And his story, I think, is is really fascinating because whenever I, I bring this story up to my students, they're always like, how is this not a movie? And I say, hey, I'm waiting. Anybody who wants to, to commission this uh, as a film, I'll do it. Um, and because he's this guy who ends up taking a fairly anti-colonial stance at a very pivotal moment in uh, Britain's history of colonization um, immediately after the First World War, where he's a British officer who will align with Pathan soldiers in raiding British cantonments um, and crossing borders repeatedly at a time when the Third Anglo-Afghan War is breaking out. And he will be working with Patans and undermining British power, um, while also in some really fascinating ways, kind of being a, a T.E. Lawrence adjacent figure, but for India, um, in that he, you know, seems to identify identify very strongly culturally with the Patan soldiers, um, while also retaining the you know, prestige and power of being a white British man in the military. So the punishments that he will receive will be far less than the punishments that um, that the Indian and Pathan men receive just by being associated with him. And he will be able to cross borders repeatedly, which I argue is a reflection of the fact that this kind of Pathan masculinity and martial prowess was, was desirable Um and worth emulating for some British men. Um, and then there's a, a kind of echo of sexual desire in this, in this story as well. Um, since there's a, a good deal of evidence that Moisey was um, sexually attracted to the Pathan man that he frees from prison, uh, Nur Hussein Shah. And so for me, it's this really interesting moment where identity and politics um, and especially sexual desire is now wrapped up in this army. Um, so it kind of goes beyond our, our view of the army as being this kind of sterile place, or if there is sex, it's with you know, prostitutes who are forcibly uh, coerced into these various relationships. And instead kind of seeing there are these interracial same-sex encounters that are happening in these colonial spaces as well that can be quite subversive in some ways while also reflecting the, the power imbalances on the ground. Now, next to you shift your focus on the uh, Nepali Gurkhas and uh, you actually make a early on in the chapter, a very important uh, point that oftentimes is not uh, uh, considered that many of the Nepali uh, uh, soldiers who were recruited, in fact, uh, were Buddhist uh, and were not just Hindu. And you talk about ways in which the British kind of framed uh, the Nepali Gurkhas as uh, soldiers who resisted or transcended caste hierarchies or caste restrictions. But in some ways, it is precisely these notions of caste that allowed the Indian army to have a relationship with the Nepali uh, government. And that, in fact, uh, the kind of uh, travels that these soldiers undertook, especially to this very notorious site of the Kalapani, which I will have you describe, and uh, there was there were these uh, purification rituals that they had to undertake, uh, 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 called the uh, uh, pani patya. So, um, so yeah. So how how did again this constant theme that we see throughout the book? There is certain kind of a preconceived notion of what a community should look like and how it will uh, play out, and then how it actually happens on the ground in terms of. Uh, the negotiation of these soldiers with their religious identities. So how did that tension play out in the case of uh, the Nepali Gurkha uh, soldiers and community? 
Sure. So I think next to uh, Sikh soldiers, the one of the most famous communities in the Indian Army equo- uh, equated with the martial races recruiting strategy is the Nepali Gurkhas. And so this meant that, you know, they would be playing a really important role in my text. Um, and I think also they function uh, really uniquely in this work because they aren't Indian soldiers, you know, their relationship with anti-colonialism, especially as it manifests um, in Indian nationalist circles, you know, this is something from which they should be excluded. Um, And so this is part of the reason why a lot of British leaders will like Nepali soldiers and, and see them as being more loyal, more steadfast. But this is also rooted in these, you know, long term 19th century misconceptions in some cases that Nepali Gurkhas are less caste bound than Indian Hindus, that, you know, they will seek glory in war and not worry about, you know, their food or if their sanitary conditions are, you know, absolutely uh, perfect, um, which is by contrast, a a frequent critique, uh, especially of high caste Hindus in the Indian army. And what I found instead, um, uh, again, through a sort of bit of luck and happenstance in the Indian uh, National Archives, was that there's actually a huge volume of documentation and effort put forth to preserve the caste purity of Nepali soldiers in the First World War. And so for me, this completely upends any argument that these soldiers are you know, great as soldiers because they don't care about caste, whereas on the ground, there's a considerable considerable amount of effort put forth to preserve caste, even though, as you suggest, you know, and as I talk about in the book, many of these soldiers aren't actually Hindu. They don't necessarily um, adhere to the particular uh, caste requirements that are imposed on them. However, in the early 20th century, there had been a series of issues and controversies about Nepali Gorkha soldiers who had served overseas in other conflicts, including against the Boxer Rebellion in China. And what British leaders are finding is that a lot of soldiers who came back from the Boxer Rebellion, a few soldiers who came back from duties such as uh, being present for the coronation of British monarchs, a lot of these Nepali men are, are being kicked out of their communities. And they, the, the reason that has been given to these British leaders is because of caste, because of the issue of the Kalapani uh, or the black waters of the ocean, which is that um, according to, you know, certain Hindu, um, especially for high caste Hindus, um, as according to certain prescriptions, if you cross the oceans, um, you inviolate your caste status. And so you need to undertake certain purification ceremonies and rituals in order to restore yourself and to restore your your caste status. Um, And so the critique that these soldiers receive having traveled overseas is that they have invalidated their caste, they're not welcome in their communities. And this confuses British officials because Nepali soldiers had been serving overseas throughout the 19th century um, in various smaller conflicts. And so what's happening in the 20th century seems to them to be a radical departure. Um, However, Nepali officials will say, no, this, this has always been a problem. It's just a problem you're hearing about or engaging with for the first time. And so they scramble and try to come up with a solution. They ultimately decide, okay, we'll bring all of the men whose caste status is up in the air. We'll bring them together. We'll give them a a uniform purification ceremony. And this will be a way of absolving the soldiers. Um, We'll give them little certificates that says, hey, guess what? Your caste status is, is just fine. You know, you've done the purification ceremony so that if anyone questions you, um, you can show them this document, which shows that that they received the ceremony. So this is what they decide in 1913 and 1914 in response to these earlier exceptional incidents of a few soldiers having difficulty. Well, of course, 1914 breaks out, First World War begins, and this is now the precedent that they've set for dealing with caste issues for Nepali soldiers. 
So of course, hundreds of thousands in some cases, uh, to certainly tens of thousands uh, of soldiers from Nepal are sent overseas. And now this is a massive issue. And so what they decide to do is create a purification station, essentially, uh, like a quarantine facility almost in Dehradun, um, in north uh, western India. Um, and they say, okay, any Nepali soldier before he can go home, before he can do anything, needs to go to Dehradun to have a purification ceremony. And there he will participate in this ceremony of Panipatia. He will receive a certificate so that, again, he will be able to show that he did the right things, that his caste is and should be uh, viewed as intact. And many Nepali soldiers will say, I'm not Hindu. I've never participated in this ceremony. This isn't my belief system. I just want to go home, um, especially in the case of in the, in the first year, years of the war. The only Nepali soldiers that are returning home uh, or returning to India are um, injured. And so a lot of these soldiers are facing a lot of difficulties. And yet it's this collaboration between British military officials and uh, Nepalese authorities that say, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you practice. You need to do this mandatory ceremony in order for us to permit you to re-enter Nepal. Um, so it's this really interesting moment where, uh, at the same time, there's a lot of critique and a lot of backlash against, especially high caste Indian Hindus, for being too particular in their caste needs, especially with regard to food. And a lot of these soldiers will be pushed out of service for that reason. By contrast, you have this massive effort, bureaucratic and also infrastructural, because a lot of the port cities are nowhere near Dehradun. So you're having to ship these soldiers in large quantities uh, up into this kind of uh, hill station far away from all the ports and ensure that their caste status is preserved, even though they maintain this reputation for not really caring about caste at all. Now, the next uh, chapter has this, some really fascinating debates uh, when it comes to the question of uh, uh, diet and uh, the dietary sort of uh, uh, ideal or normative dietary patterns that should be followed with respect to each of these different communities. And you very uh, 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 remarkably show ways in which, again, these preconceived notions of what kinds of dietary patterns will work with particular communities are, again, frustrated by how things actually play out in terms of the lives of these soldiers and so on. So, um, and the chapter is uh, titled uh, The Government's Salt from Fast to Famine. Uh, so if you could explain a bit to our listeners the significance of the the, or the symbolism of uh, salt that is part of the title of this chapter. And then if you could perhaps pick a couple of these uh, debates, these uh, controversies around dietary uh, sort of uh, practices that should be followed by the military and how that is then frustrated by how things play out on the ground uh, to speak a bit about the larger thematic of this chapter. Sure. Uh, so this chapter takes the salt... Um, idea, which is something that had been really important for Indian soldiers, not just during the colonial period, but in pre-colonial um, and Mughal armies um, long before the British ever got involved. And so the idea, the central idea is of Namakalal, um, which is a bond of mutual protection, which basically says that if you devote yourself to a leader and that leader gives you salt or bread or food, uh, that's a bond of mutual protection in accepting that salt and accepting that nourishment from this leader, you are um, essentially agreeing to protect, to fight for him, um, him in most cases, but certainly not all. Uh, and so this becomes a, a pretty deeply rooted um, idea in a lot of South Asian martial cultures, including among uh, Rajputs, um, but especially in uh, as the Northwestern uh, region and, and all of the martial cultures found there. So it becomes a fairly pervasive idea about military service, this idea of accepting compensation for military service, especially tied to food or tied to diet, uh, which then obligates you to serve uh, the person who, who gives it to you. And so over time, this evolves to mean the payment that you receive for military service 
makes you devoted to the person that's paying you. And so this is something that British leaders will emphasize and lean into by the early 20th century to try to maintain soldiers' loyalty. It's something that soldiers will constantly bring up in their letters home, uh, especially in the First World War when things are very difficult and you know they're facing a, a type of warfare that none of them ever expected. They're facing really difficult circumstances or fighting in trenches. They're dealing with, uh, you know, oppressive weather conditions. So many of them are writing home uh, anxious about this experience, but then remind themselves. And then in some cases, their families will remind them that because they accepted salt from the government of India, from the British leaders, that they have uh, an obligation to see their military service through to the end. And this is really interesting in the context of the you know late 19th and early 20th century when the relationship between food and empire is really complicated and, and contested, um, especially because of the high rates of famine uh, that happen in India in general, but especially in um, northwestern India uh, and particularly in and around Punjab, which was one of the, the major recruiting districts of the Indian army. So there was a major famine that broke out in 1907-1908, and that had inspired a lot of anti-colonial sentiment within Punjab uh, and created a lot of bitterness. And so increasingly, the argument will be among Indian nationalists and Indian anti-colonial leaders uh, that soldiers don't, in fact, owe the loyalty of their salt to the government of India because the government of India is taking salt, they're taking nourishment, they're taking bread from India itself. And so this changes the conversation slowly but surely to where a lot of soldiers will now say, okay, yeah, we we aren't simply involved in a, in a one-to-one equal exchange, but because the government of India, because the British Empire controls Uh, Punjab controls the natural resources and is extracting wealth and food from India, um, you know, that's already uh, the withdrawal. That's already the exchange. And so soldiers, therefore, don't necessarily owe their service. And so I see this play out uh, and this especially the issue of food play out in in various ways uh, across communities. And so I focus Uh, on the kind of contradictory ways that food is uh, evoked to try to maintain loyal service among soldiers, while thinking also uh, in continuity with the previous chapter about how groups like Indian Hindus are increasingly being perceived as um, too prejudiced or, you know, too devoted to caste to serve effectively. And so this is driving a lot of these soldiers out of military service, a lot of them are being excluded. Um, a lot of their uh, regiments are being shut down because of the equation of high caste Hindus, especially Brahmins, with being too prejudiced about food. When in actuality, a lot of the food critiques will be rooted in other issues, rooted in lack of access to pay, uh, lack of support for where they're being sent. Soldiers will sometimes play into the knowledge that British officers view them as prejudiced. And so they'll say, okay, yeah, it's about the food. Um, If this will prevent us from having to go serve in the Mesopotamia campaign, for example, which they have been hearing is notoriously difficult and brutal. So soldiers are, are navigating this. Soldiers are influenced by these growing critiques, which say you don't owe your loyalty to the British empire because of Uh, these inequalities of access to food. But at the same time, they are being, you know, certain communities are being undermined, certain communities are being excluded from military service because of these misunderstandings of, you know, what exactly food is being used for and who uh, can, can claim the government salt. While also, as we saw with the case of the Nepali Gurkhas, um, when British leaders see value to a community or see value to grievances, they will go above and beyond to make soldiers access to food, um, especially religiously defined food or community defined food uh, and food rituals important. So the counterpoint to what we see happening with high caste Hindus who are being called prejudiced 
is that a lot of Indian Muslim soldiers are getting better access to food and better concessions around things like the fast of, of Ramadan or Ramzan uh, because there is this value associated with Muslim soldiers and their service. And especially in the fight against the Ottoman Empire, British leaders really want to keep Muslim soldiers happy and keep them fighting and seeing the British as their best chance of um, of honoring their faith. And so we see a lot of effort put into uh, preserving and maintaining Muslim soldiers' access to food um, and religious necessity, uh, religious ceremonies, in a way that contrasts rather strikingly from what's happening with high caste Indian Hindus. Now, in the next uh, chapter, uh, A Nation at Odds with Nationalism, uh, you show a very interesting shift that uh, takes place in sort of British conceptions and policies on the question of uh, 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 nationhood or the or the possibility of a national identity whereas you you argue that you know prior to say 1920 there was this notion that you know that india was what you call a mere patchwork of races or uh, a place uh, uh, defined by a, a plethora of uh, caste identities which cannot come together as a nation but you argue that perhaps after 1920 there was this establishment of military colleges and so on where a certain kind of a uh, national identity was cultivated through practices of sort of uh, civilization, civilizational sort of etiquette and so on. Um, and 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 if I could sort of sum up your argument that you make uh, uh, in this chapter, uh, I'm quoting you from page 150, uh, at the bottom you say, few anticipated that educational, religious and racial integration would shock and destabilize, but also re-entrench army hierarchies. So could you explain, explain a bit this, this argument of how these practices of trying to transcend these distinctions by creating a nation, national identity, in fact, perhaps re-entrenched certain kinds of army hierarchies uh, as part of these military colleges and, and so on? Sure. So the aftermath of the First World War is a really fascinating moment where a lot of Indian soldiers, as well as Indian nationalist leaders, are looking for a, a kind of payout or compensation for the massive contribution that Indians made to the First World War. And that's politically, that's also within the military. And so there's a lot more pressure on the government of India to extend officer ranks to Indian soldiers who have, prior to this time, only been able to um, you know, never been able to rise to a rank that would ever um, allow them to outrank a, a British soldier or a British officer. They had a completely separate ranking system. And so this happens at a moment where a lot of soldiers are saying, yes, this is something that we want. And the British response is to say, okay, we, we acknowledge this, but we also think that education is necessary to bring Indian soldiers up to the level that they can successfully serve as officers. And one of the, the chief stumbling blocks, as they see it, and as you um, mentioned uh, in your question, is that they say, okay, there's just too much diversity and we can never get, you know, say a Muslim Pathan to successfully lead, um, you know, a Hindu Rajput, you know, that there are these deep rooted regional class, caste, religious differences where these soldiers will never be able to command one another uh, successfully on the battlefield because, you know, the, the assumption for a lot of colonial officials is that they, they just don't get along. They'll never be able to respect one another. And so they see education and these uh, colleges, these training centers, and eventually the Indian Military Academy as a way to transcend these class, caste, religious differences and start to lean into the idea of an Indian nation and to encourage these soldiers to see themselves as truly nationally united, to see themselves as Indians rather than to see themselves as Punjabis or as Patans or as Rajputs or as Sikhs. Um, and so this is a, a pretty dramatic reversal from pre-war army policy, which always emphasized the difference. If you wanted to be recruited into the army, you had to demonstrate that you were a member of the Khalsa in order to be recruited as a Sikh. You had to demonstrate that you were a Pathan. You had to demonstrate that you weren't a high caste Hindu uh, in a lot of cases. 
And so it was all about emphasizing these divisions uh, prior to the First World War. Whereas after the First World War, they're saying, hey, we want to make sure that these soldiers can fight together, can work together, and can be comfortable leading any type of soldier from any background. So this creates in the army a culture where the nation is always kind of taken as uh, as self-evident and as uh, an eventuality toward which these soldiers are now aspiring. So this makes a lot of soldiers think differently about the relationship between um, Indian nationalism and the army, um, where a lot of soldiers will will join the army, will come into these military academies and say, yeah, we're doing this because we want India to be free one day, because we want to be an independent nation. Uh, and we believe that the army can provide uh, a vehicle for that. And this is also happening, especially as we get into the 1930s, at a time when Indian politics, uh, especially nationalist politics, are increasingly stratified, increasingly divided. And so you see a a pretty much complete reversal where the pre-war army was all about particularity and division and a lot of Uh, nationalist cultures were about looking past differences and kind of thinking of ways to come together. In the aftermath of the First World War, and especially, you know, after the Depression into the 1930s, Indian nationalist politics get very divided, and it becomes difficult for a lot of nationalist leaders to see an outcome where Hindus and Muslims can, can remain together in a unified state. Um, certainly not in all cases. There are many exceptions to this, but there is a growing sense, uh, especially among the men who are joining the army, who are attracted to these educational opportunities, that the best way to facilitate successful nationhood is by joining the army and by propping up these institutions with which emphasize interfaith commonalities, um, which will increasingly set them apart and make them feel isolated from the more mainstream or more dominant Indian nationalist cultures that are happening. What will further complicate the situation, though, is that even as many of these soldiers are attaining these high ranks, buying into these arguments about interracial and interfaith collaboration, um, when they try to enter into British spaces or to claim the prestige and the power uh, that they've been training to claim, um, they find that they aren't really accepted, that they aren't really welcomed with open arms, that they are still facing a lot of uh, racial prejudice. And so once we, you know, are looking toward the Second World War, when a lot of these uh, young men, young officers are, are being sent overseas, a lot of them are feeling Okay, we we held up our end of the bargain. We, you know, looked past our differences. We learned to work with a lot of different men, and yet the British are are still not seeming to treat us on equal footing. And so that will uh, deepen in very interesting ways a lot of the feelings of uh, resentment that some members of the military will have. Now, the next chapter, I I found two uh, really fascinating and important themes, and I'll just put them out there, and then perhaps you can uh, connect them. In the manner that you that that you wish, uh, the chapter is of course called "Martial Masculinity in the Fascist Utopia." The first thing that I found really fascinating was um, ways in which this idea of masculinity was more and more appropriated by certain Hindu groups uh, that tried to uh, resist this earlier notion of uh, you know the Bengali effeminate figure or this very categorization of martial races as that of uh, Sikhs and Pathans and the Gurkhas were sort of uh, disrupted by certain kinds of uh, uh, Hindu groups that tried to uh, appropriate this figure of masculinity by, you know, opening up gymnasiums. And this is, of course, corresponding to uh, the emergence of uh, 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 Savarkar's writings and RSS and so on. Uh, So I I was wondering if you could speak about that uh, sort of uh, theme of uh, how this plays out in terms of how particular Hindu groups try to uh, uh, appropriate this mantle of masculinity. Um, and then second, of course, key theme of this chapter on which most of this chapter is uh, devoted is this uh, interconnection between fascism and imperialism uh, of how a certain kind of an anti-Semitic logic, in fact, uh, was is useful to uh, examine this relationship uh, between fascism and, uh, and imperial militarism. 
So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about these two key themes that I saw as perhaps the major themes of this chapter. Of course. So in the context of uh, Hindu nationalism, we see, uh, as you suggest, a really interesting and perhaps unexpected dynamic, um, which is that a lot of Indian leaders, a lot of Indian Hindu men um, will take really to heart these critiques, these efforts to portray them as unmanly and to see the military as a way of learning how to be martial, learning how to be manly, that if they emulate British soldiers as well as the men of the martial races and claim for themselves the right to inflict violence, to structure masculinity around military service, that this will alleviate those critiques and condemnations that many feel they've been facing um, under colonialism and also provide a, a platform through which they can claim the nation themselves um, and with violence if necessary. And so these Hindu nationalist cultures will be paying very close attention to what's going on in the military, especially what's happening in these military colleges and some Hindu leaders will start to open up their own military college. So they will try to teach young Hindu men to be strong, to be manly. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is that because there's been such a critique um, in colonial circles about the problem of the Hindu body, the solution is to say, okay, let's separate Hindu men from um, the from anyone else. Let's isolate them. Let's focus on their bodies, on their strength. And so they're doing something very different from what's happening in the Indian army and in the Indian military academy at the same time. Uh, at this time, the Indian military academies and colleges are trying to say, okay, let's forget differences. Let's bring them in together, um, which again is a reversal from, from earlier policy. Whereas these Hindu leaders will say, okay, let's separate Hindu men. Let's emphasize the, the valor and virtues of being a Hindu warrior. Let's look back to historical precedents that exclude any other community and let's similarly exclude any other community from these training colleges. And so this creates a, a much more segregated landscape on the ground um, and an equation of, of masculinity exclusively with Hindus and starts to deepen that um, conversation among some Hindu nationalists that the only way to, to truly honor the nation is to make it about Hinduism and to, to truly make uh, an independent India is to make one that is structured around Hindu ethics and Hindu militarization which has some some fairly dire consequences um you know for the the partition of india and the 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 growing outlook that india is and should be exclusively a hindu nation and i think that this ties into uh, the dynamics of fascism uh because we see a, a similar kind of logic playing out with anti-semitism um which is you know, this equation of race and religion, that there is something innate and inherent about faith that makes you unchangeable, that makes you inherently different. Um, and so we see this equation of race and religion um, in a European context happening in the demonization of Jews as fundamentally different, as fundamentally other. And that this is playing out in a similar way um, and in a, a really complex and, and I think tragic way in the Indian army, because you have a lot of British officers who are being influenced by uh, a rising tide of fascist culture across Europe, including in Britain. Some, not all, uh, but some Indian army officers who are British will say, this is what we need in order to retain control of our colonies. We need to be uh, more exclusive in our outlook. We need to be very clear about who is the leader, who is a follower, who belongs in a nation, who doesn't, who belongs in the army, who doesn't. Uh, and so this reflects the longer patterns of the martial races, those exclusionary recruiting practices. This reflects the longer patterns of equating military masculinity uh, with what it really means to be a man. Uh, and it equates the, the kind of 
fluctuation and, and collapsing of differences between race and religion um, in India. And so there will be a lot of British officers who bring anti-Semitic attitudes into the Indian army and will also apply this kind of logic to religious difference in India. Um, and so one thing that will happen uh, will be an equation of Hindus with Jews. And, you know, the argument, especially applied to high caste Hindus, um, that they are, um, you know, elite effeminate uh, as the, the kind of longer um, prejudice uh, against the, these communities had maintained in the 19th century. But also there's um, a desire to see high caste Hindus as business oriented, as money oriented, as money grubbing, and thereby inherently fundamentally different from the landed stock of Muslims, uh, of Sikhs, and, you know, seeing these as not just religious issues, but uh, as fundamentally different ways of living and being um, economically and socially. And so I think that there's um, a really interestingly tragic thing that's happening in the Indian army in this late colonial period, just before the second world war, uh, which emphasizes that these communities can't live together, that there are too many differences that a Hindu outlook is, you know, money driven and, uh, you know, Muslim and Sikh uh, outlook is rooted in the land that the best representation that these communities can have is in the army, that they will never be represented by uh, an Indian nation. And so a lot of these British officers will see themselves and British soldiers in some cases will see themselves as, you know, the true advocates for their soldiers, that only British colonialism can maintain the disciplined and hierarchical difference and distance between these communities, which can never be reconciled at the same time that we see Hindu nationalists making a, a similar set of arguments that they can never have uh, enough in common to uh, with Hindus, with Sikhs uh, to, you know, reconcile and have a successful independent nation. So as, as we sort of, uh, uh, complete our conversation on on this book, uh, uh, Kate. I was wondering if you could just take a step back and perhaps you know one of the things that I find particularly remarkable about this book is the way that it speaks to multiple disciplines. I mean, there is so much here for scholars of religious studies. In fact, I think this will make a phenomenal text for even uh, a course on theories and methods in religious studies because ultimately what you're showing is the limits and the fractures and the ambiguities of. Uh, uh, colonial power and um, uh, modern colonial power and its attempts to sort of frame and categorize and canonize indigenous religion. And it's always being frustrated by how these communities actually play out. Uh, and of course, South Asian history, military history. Um, so I was wondering, in your own words, if one took a step back, what is the sort of primary conceptual uh, take-home point that you would want readers to take away in terms of your intervention in these different fields of South Asian studies, South Asian religions, perhaps even the study of Islam uh, and religious studies. Uh, how, what, what is the sort of conceptual take-home point that you would want lead readers to take away uh, after reading this, uh, this book? So my thinking on this um, has been very interdisciplinary, and I'm, I'm very grateful for this question, um, because when I started this project, I was very interested in uh, the insights of people like uh, Edward Said, Talal Assad, uh, Richard King, who are critically analyzing this category of religion and how it has been used in a colonial context to try to standardize and stabilize uh, religious identities as fixed and unchanging. And so what I hope the conceptual takeaway of this book is, is to show just how untrue that is, you know, that, that there is no such thing as a fixed religious identity, that religious identities uh, change over time. They interact with other faith groups. They take inspiration from other faith groups. They um, are shaped by the political circumstances, the historical circumstances, uh, the traumas of war. All of these things shape how people understand, formulate, uh, and employ their beliefs as they're living in the modern world. And I think that a lot of times, even still in the 21st century, um, in India, you know, in South Asia more broadly, in Britain and the United States, um, sort of a, a global issue is this desire to think 
um, you know, a Muslim is this one thing, a Christian is this one thing. And if we read these particular texts, we can use that as a roadmap for understanding everything about how all Muslims or how all Christians or how all Hindus think. And what this work I hope shows is that, you know, faith groups are what you make of them. Um, they can provide tremendous source of inspiration, of political motivation, uh, of unity, but also of division. And if we're not careful about recognizing um, the historical specificity of our own times and how these are shaping conversations of religion, religious difference, and who gets to belong in a faith group, in a nation state, uh, or in any sort of community, we are replicating the tendencies of the colonial past, which only led to more violence and more destruction. And uh, Kate, as we are coming to the end of our time, uh, perhaps could you share a bit with our listeners what you're planning on as uh, sort of the next uh, project? Absolutely. Um, I am currently working on my next project, which continues to think about the intersections of war and imperialism in British colonial Asia. Uh, and in particular, I'm really interested in thinking about uh, rapid political, social and cultural transformations that happen in Singapore and Malaya in the 20th century from the First World War to the Malayan emergency and, and how you have a large number of South Asian troops, but also East African soldiers, Australians, New Zealanders, British uh, soldiers from literally all over the world fighting in these campaigns, uh, which will culminate in the, the coining of one of the most famous phrases in military history, which is winning hearts and minds. And so I want to, rather than read that phrase forward and think about its impact on the Cold War and, you know, military history and military thought, I want to root the hearts and minds idea in the colonial past to understand what relationship militaries have actually had in colonial spaces uh, between uh, in bridging the, the relationship between soldiers and civilians. So that's my that's my next project in a nutshell. Faithful Fighters, Identity and Power in the British Indian Army by Kate Imey, uh, published by uh, Stanford University Press in 2019. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Kate, for your time, uh, for this really uh, incredible book, which I'm sure will be read widely by multiple scholars from multiple fields, and for your uh, generosity in engaging us today on the New Books Network. Uh, really appreciate your time and this uh, conversation. I'm sure our listeners really benefited from it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me, uh, especially at this time. <laughs> so this was my conversation with Professor Kate Imey about her wonderful new book, Faithful Fighters. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.